Morning, church. Good to see everybody here. Well, well done digging out, right, from the snow. If you're a visitor, my name is Kelly. I serve senior pastor. It's a privilege to be in the pulpit this morning, just uh, reflecting on what a blessing it is to get to open God's Word and share what I believe the Lord's laid on my heart and what a privileged position it is, and I'm eager to do so this morning. We're in week two of a short three-week series titled The Beautiful Bride. It's focused on outlining God's multi-ethnic vision for the church. Turn with me in your copy to Scriptures to Acts chapter 8. Follow along as I read a story that demonstrates clearly that black lives matter to God. As you're turning there, let me quickly review last week so I can set up this week. Last week, we considered the story that Jesus offered highlighting the boundless nature of God's neighborly love. God is boundless in his neighborliness. Jesus told us, it's a well-known story, the Good Samaritan, found in Luke 10. It's the story of a Samaritan who stops to help a wounded stranger, someone that's been victimized along the road. And the Samaritan stops, but the priest and the Levite, uh, Jewish leadership in the community, they didn't bother stopping. And in offering this story, Jesus was intentionally addressing the longstanding racial tensions between Jews and Samaritans, forcing the Israelite community to acknowledge God's desire that mercy would be shown. His desire for mercy rather than sacrifice. God's grace and mercy toward humanity knows no racial, ethnic, cultural boundaries, and his people are to love with the same boundless love. We're to love our neighbors without end, boundless, breaking down barriers of culture and race and ethnicity. This morning, we want to move past beyond the teachings of our Savior into the experiences of the early church, the book of Acts. I mentioned last week that when I consider theological hot topics, in this case racism in America, when I consider those theological hot topics, I look first to see, did Jesus address this? If so, what did Jesus have to say? And then I'll move next into the book of Acts and say, how did the early church wrestle with this as the church was getting established? What indication do we see there? of racial tensions being addressed, resolved, reconciliation being the the passion of God, even as the church is being established, and then make our way into the epistles. Did Paul have anything to say about it? Peter have anything to say about it? John have anything to say about it? And that'll make up week three next week as we look at what was written to the churches after the church was established. This morning we're in the book of Acts. It opens with this declaration by Christ right before he ascends back into the heavens, He's gathered with his disciples. He said to them in Acts chapter 1, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you'll be my witnesses. The result of the power that you'll receive will make you my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Some translations say the uttermost parts of the world. By outlining the geographic expansion of the mission of God with the gospel, 
when outlining the Holy Spirit's going to condescend, he's going to come down, and you're going to be empowered, and here's how the, the empowerment's going to impact you. You're going to reach Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, these concentric kind of regional circles, the ends of the earth. Here, Jesus indicates the gospel is going to move beyond Israel, and that every nation, tribe, people, and language, John's word in the book of Revelation chapter 7, every nation, tribe, and people, language group is going to hear the gospel. There'll be no geographic boundaries to the good news. Here we see that God is the ultimate neighbor. He's breaking down those boundaries. He's reaching to the uttermost parts of the world, and his people are going to be a part of that. His people are going to have a heart to do that. His people are going to be mobilized. They're going to go. In the very next chapter, Acts chapter 2, we see that it's not just lip service. Jesus is serious about this. He's really going to reach the nations. He's going to reach the uttermost parts. This geographic expansion, the first step in it is that 3,000 people come to faith in Jesus at the birth of the church. Luke writes in the book of Acts, the author of Acts, he says, these 3,000 converts, the first day of the church's uh, existence, are from every nation under heaven. They come to saving faith. Peter, in fact, right, the Holy Spirit comes and Peter is empowered, right? You'll receive power and the Holy Spirit comes on you. Peter, in fact, experiences that. He steps out on the streets of Jerusalem. He begins to preach to this large crowd that's been gathered because of the ruckus around the condescension of the Holy Spirit, the tongues of fire, the speaking in other languages. And he steps out on the streets of Jerusalem to explain what's going on, and 3,000 trust in Christ that first day. And then Luke gives us what is classically referred to as a table of nations. If you're a student of the Bible, you'll realize that the, the Acts chapter 2 table of nations mirrors, in large respect, the Genesis chapter 10 table of nations, effectively reversing the curse of the Tower of Babel. So Genesis 10, there's this table of nations. They've gathered in Genesis 11. Nothing's going to prevent them from doing whatever they want. They're going to together raise this arrogant um, kind of uh, worship practice. They have this ziggurat, Genesis 11, the Tower of Babel. God comes down and, and confuses the language when he comes. Fast forward to Acts chapter 2. We've got another table of nations, and here we have the Holy Spirit coming, and he's helping people understand the gospel. The Holy Spirit's overcoming linguistic boundaries that were put in place in Genesis 11. Here it is. God's reversing the curse of Babel. Luke goes out of his way to list the nations that are there. It's on the screen, Acts chapter 2. Now, they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. Every nation under heaven. That's not, I mean... Luke knows the scriptures. He's, he's an intelligent author. He's trying to point the way for us. The Holy Spirit's going to work across the globe. Where are they from? Parthenians, Medes, Elamites, residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. Visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans and Arabs, from this group of people. Every nation under heaven, 3,000 trusted on the day of Pentecost. As you look at this list, you should note, and if you're an underliner, you might underline Egypt and the parts of Libya near Cyrene. There's a very rudimentary map on the screen outlining where Cyrene is. You see the Mediterranean is the big blue. You can spot Italy, easy enough, the boot. Across from Italy, northern Africa, 
Africans were present at Pentecost. So we must ask ourselves, when were the first black converts to Christianity? Was it during the colonial era when Western Europeans sailed across the ocean and invaded Africa and captured slaves and priests came with them, clergy came with them and shared the gospel even as slaves were being captured in these cultures, in these nations? Is that the first time the gospel made its inroads into Africa? No. Europeans were not the first to carry the gospel to Africa. Africans were the first to carry the gospel to Africa. Egyptians and Libyans heard the gospel at the Feast of Pentecost on the day the church was born. And Egyptians and Libyans took it back to Africa with them when they went. And then in Acts 8, God works in a powerful way to make sure that the gospel was carried to sub-Saharan Africa by moving in a fantastical way, absolutely fantastical, so that one black man from the ancient kingdom of Ethiopia heard and received the gospel and carries it back to sub-Saharan Africa. I'm going to begin in verse 26. Acts chapter 8, Now an angel of the Lord said to Philip, Go south to the road, the desert road, that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So he started out on his way. He met an Ethiopian eunuch, an important official, in, the charge, in charge of all the treasury of the candidate, parenthetically, which means queen of the Ethiopians. Some translations will have the queen's name there, Candace. This man had gone to Jerusalem, this Ethiopian eunuch had gone to Jerusalem to worship. On his way home, he was sitting in his chariot reading the book of Isaiah the prophet. The spirit told Philip, go to the chariot, go to that chariot and stay near it. Then Philip ran up to the chariot, heard the man reading Isaiah the prophet, and says to him, do you understand what you're reading? How can I, the Ethiopian said, unless someone explains it to me. So he invited Philip to come up and sit with him. This is the passage of scripture the eunuch was reading. He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb before its shear is silent, so he did not open his mouth. In his humiliation, he was deprived of justice. Who can speak of his descendants? For his life was taken from the earth. The eunuch asked Philip, tell me please, who is the prophet talking about? Is he talking about himself or somebody else? Then Philip began with that very passage out of Isaiah in the scripture and told him the good news about Jesus. And as they traveled along the road, they came to some water and the eunuch said, look, here is water. What can stand in the way of me being baptized? As an aside, I'll just insert here, if you've not been baptized as a follower of Christ, our next baptism service is Easter morning. would love to uh, hear your testimony of faith in Christ. The eunuch is about to be baptized. And he gave orders to stop the chariot. Then both Philip and the eunuch went down into the water, and Philip baptized him. When they came up out of the water, the Spirit of the Lord suddenly took Philip away, and the eunuch did not see him again, but went on his way rejoicing. Philip, however, appeared at Azotos and traveled about preaching the gospel in all the towns until he reached Caesarea. What type of travel was that? My goodness, right? Philip's transported fantastically, miraculously. He's taken from that situation and plucked down and just keeps preaching the gospel. It's a stunning story of God's intervention in the life of one man. 
This man was from ancient Ethiopia in Africa, had come some 500 miles to worship God. So out of all the, here's, here's what strikes me as so interesting. Out of all the people to whom God could have sent Philip, Jews that needed to hear the gospel, Samaritans that needed to hear the gospel, Gentiles that needed to hear the gospel. God prioritizes the conversion, the care of this one black man's soul. And he goes back to Ethiopia, sub-Saharan Africa, rejoicing. Clearly, black lives matter to God. Philip could have been sent to any number of people. And God, God moves him into this man's life, then plucks him up and moves him on. Greeks in the first century used the term Ethiopia as a general term to refer to everything south of Egypt. So the first century concept of Ethiopia was everything south of Egypt. Egypt is um, at the headwaters, or at the Nile, I should say, there on the Mediterranean, if you're looking at the map. Sorry about how poor the map is. Most of the Greco-Roman contact with Ethiopians was with a people group in the kingdom of Cush. That's the black circle I put at the bottom of the map. So at the southern portion of the Nile, there was this kingdom called Cush, K-U-S-H, later on referred to as the Merorite kingdom because the, the capital was moved to Maor, and I don't know if I'm saying that correctly. If this map were at all legible, Maor is at the bottom of the map. Most Ethiopians appearing in Greco-Roman literature are from this region, where the circle is. There's no doubt that this particular Ethiopian is from this region because of the queen he served, Candace. This queen's name, we know it from extra-biblical sources. Her name appears not only in the Bible, but in other ancient sources. She was a black queen ruling a black African kingdom, and this is her treasurer. He believed the gospel. He was already a God-fearer, a proselyte, maybe a convert to Judaism. That's why he had traveled to Jerusalem some 500 miles to worship, perceivably. But he goes back fully understanding the gospel, the, the Old Testament testimony of the suffering lamb out of Isaiah, and then the, the miraculous nature of Christ, dead, buried, raised again, now ascended into the heavens that Philip would have preached to him. He gets baptized, and we're told he goes back to Ethiopia rejoicing. Arrhenius, second century, we don't know this for sure, this is church historians, this isn't biblical uh, text, but Arrhenius said that he went back and acted as a missionary in sub-Saharan Africa. That's a second century testimony of this Ethiopian eunuch's impact. Clearly, black lives matter to God. We know this from the geographic aim, target, that Christ said that God has on the proliferation of, of the gospel, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost. We know this from his extraordinary work to reach this sub-Saharan black man so that he could carry the gospel back. Have you seen these yard signs? I'll just, anybody seen these yard signs? Come on, don't be shy. I'm not the only one that's seen these yard signs. In fact, you Google these yard signs, there's a fair bit of dialogue culturally about the value of uh, productivity of these yard signs to the conversation culturally overall. I love these yard signs. I love these yard signs not because I agree with everything written on them. 
I do not, in fact, agree with the, what I perceive lies behind what is written on these yard signs. But on face value, I can, I can agree with these, particularly with the phrase Black Lives Matter. And so I love these yard signs not because I agree with everything that's written on them, but I love them because they're a creedal statement. Do you see these as a creedal statement? They're sharing, when someone puts these in their front lawn, they're sharing their core beliefs, which I view as an opportunity for dialogue. And again, I know there's a fair bit of discussion around whether these signs are meant to be provocative and, and shut down conversation or actually an invitation to conversation. But for me, this type of declaration is just that. It's an invitation to conversation. When someone places this creedal statement in a, in, a, in a house or in the front lawn of a house that I can get to easily, I think to go across and say, well, tell me more. Share with me what you believe on issues of, and if you just run your finger down, what do you believe on issues of race, abortion, immigration, immunology, sexuality? And I get it. Maybe that's a lot to bite off for a conversation. <laughs> Good, you're with me. <laughs> I wouldn't try to cover all those topics in a single conversation in the front lawn. But it's important that we're willing to because God broke into our lives and rescued us. We'll sing that song to close our service. And as good neighbors, we must be ready, willing, eager even to engage others about these types of cultural hot topics. We need to, Peter said, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 15, be ready to give an answer for the hope that you have in Christ. And so when they say black lives matter, and we clearly see in Scripture that black lives matter, we can walk across the street and we say, well, tell us more. What do you mean when black, you say black lives matter? And, if they, they, and we say, well, we're a follower of Jesus Christ, and Scripture clearly say, says that black lives matter to God. It's obvious in Scripture that black lives matter to God. And I ask if we're ready for a productive conversation because I think that we may need to be ready to talk about church history. If, if, if as a follower of Jesus Christ, you, you walk across to your neighbor's house and you say, hey, I, I believe black lives matter based on Acts chapter 1, Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 8, when I see God doing there in the unfolding of redemptive history, what do you believe when you say black lives matter? And they say, really, you're a follower of Jesus and you believe black lives matter? What about church history? Are we ready to have a productive conversation? Well, they say, what about George Woodfield, arguably the greatest evangelist, in the history of America. Yes, I am aware of a Billy Graham. George Whitfield, the Great Awakening, slave owner. You're, you're a follower of Jesus? Really? And you believe Black Lives Matter to God? What about Jonathan Edwards? Now, Jonathan Edwards is considered America's greatest ever theologian, slave owner. Really? You're telling me Black Lives Matter to God, and George Whitfield, The Great Awakening, Jonathan Edwards, The Great Awakening, the greatest the American theologian, white, by the way, if you don't, he was, they're both white men. You're telling me Black Lives Matter, and those two pastors, evangelists, own slaves, really? Are we ready to have productive conversations about the heart and purposes of God? Because while God moved heaven and earth to start at the start of the church to reach Egyptians, northern Africa, Libyans, northern Africa, Ethiopians, sub-Saharan Africa, he moves heaven and earth to reach them. The church has not always acted in America as though black lives mattered to God. 
In fact, many within the American church acted for many years as though black lives did not matter to God. Last week I shared that the largest American Protestant denomination, the Southern Baptist denomination, got its start, 1845, 15 years before the Civil War started, it got its start as 300 Baptist leaders, pastors, 300, representing 400,000 congregants separated to form the Southern Baptist denomination so that they could send out missionaries who owned slaves and their pastors could own slaves. This point of history is well documented, but what is lesser known is that the public confession and repentance of slaveholding as a sin by the Southern Baptist leadership didn't come until 1995. 130 years after the end of the Civil War, 150 years after the denomination was started. Part of the statement of their repentance is on the screen. We lament and repudiate historic acts of evil such as slavery from which we continue, we continue to reap a bitter harvest and we recognize that the racism which yet plagues, which yet plagues our culture today is inextricably tied to the past. This resolution went on to ask for the forgiveness of African Americans and pledged to eradicate racism from the denomination, something they're still working on in 2022. And Baptists weren't the only denomination with a racist history. 25,000 Methodists split to form a, do, a new denomination in the year 1844. That would be 16 years before the Civil War started. 25,000 Methodists. They did so so that their clergy could own slaves. Those 25,000 Methodists had 208,000 slaves. And of the 25,000 Methodists that in 1844 moved to make their own denomination for the sake of slaveholding, 1,200 of those slaveholders were pastors. Forty-eight presbyteries broke away from the for the same reason in 1837. Unless we think that all American church failures on the issue of racism were pre-Civil War, unless we think that they were primarily failures among Christians in the South, an American historian named Olivia Waxman notes the surprising growth of the Ku Klux Klan among northern states during the Reconstruction era. Reconstruction is that era of rebuilding the South after it had been decimated during the Civil War. During Reconstruction, after the Civil War, hundreds of thousands of African Americans migrated north to escape poverty and ongoing racism. And the response of many Christians in the north to this migration was sinful. By 1920, Waxman estimates that the membership of the KKK among northern states was over three million. The estimate's between three and five million. Over three million. 
40,000 were clergy. 40,000 northern clergy, members of the KKK, in the, year, in the 1920s. Still, you might say, gosh, Kelly, the 1920s was a long time ago. Surely the church has made strides. Yes, the church has made strides. By the goodness of the Holy Spirit, absolutely the church has made strides. But it was white clergy, Baptists, Methodists, and Presbyterian together, who wrote to MLK while he sat in a jail in 1963 in Birmingham. It was ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ who wrote to him asking him to stand down in his nonviolent activities in their city, pleading with him to call off the marches and the demonstrations. Mind you, he was sitting in jail. Call off the marches. Demonstrate greater patience in your work in civil rights. It was clergy that wrote it. Many of us in this room I know have read letter from a Birmingham jail. What's often lesser known is what was he responding to? Who had written to him? It was clergy, white clergy in Birmingham. Part of his response is on the screen. I've almost reached the regrettable conclusion that the Negro's great stumbling block in this stride toward freedom is not the white citizen's counselor or the Ku Klux Klanner but the white moderate who is more devoted to order they were asking him to stand down for the sake of civil order than to justice who prefers a negative peace which is the absence of tension to a positive peace which is the presence of justice shallow understanding from people of goodwill is more frustrating than the absolute misunderstanding from people of ill will. Lukewarm acceptance is much more bewildering than outright rejection. Well, surely that was a sentiment of only Southern Christians in the 1960s who couldn't see the theological forest for the trees mired in their own cultural context and history, unable to see what godliness really was. Certainly that wasn't the posture of Christians in places as far as California, I don't think so. In fact, this week I ran across a letter from Pastor Tim LaHaye to President Hudson Armerding of Wheaton College. The date on the letter is May 23rd, 1968, just under two months from MLK's assassination. You'll know Tim LaHaye perhaps uh, from his best-selling book series, Left Behind published by Tyndale House and Carol Stream. He went on to write, he's passed away at this time, but he, he wrote some 85 books, certainly a man of evangelical influence nationally. If you look closely at the letter dated May 23rd, 1968, MLK was shot April 4, 68. Hudson Armerding was planning a memorial service at Wheaton College, well done Hudson Armerding, for MLK in the wake of his assassination. LaHaye wrote to express his frustrations that a service of this nature would be planned and carried out. 
He wrote, quote, it seems incredible that a Christian college could participate in, in honoring an outright theological liberal and heretic. That a prominent evangelical white leader from California objected to a memorial service for a civil rights leader who had recently been murdered doesn't speak well for the church nationally. Well, that was the 60s. Surely we're doing better, and I think we are, frankly. What about in our lifetime, my lifetime? I was born in 68. Then there's the historic white flight of the church out of the city in the 1970s, as church leaders were active at worst and complicit at best in their resistance to racial integration. Sociologist Mark Mulder asserts that church leaders actively participated in racial relocation of whites from the cities to the suburbs in order to protect their influence in their congregations. In so doing, they left neighborhoods such as Inglewood and the Roseland neighborhood in Chicago without the historic witness of the gospel. Rather than adapt and assist in those communities through integration, they up and left and moved. That was my own experience. Born in 68, busing laws for integration. I was born in Waco, Texas. Busing laws, I think they were passed in 68. It might have been 67. They did not take effect in Texas until the 70s, 1973, my parents up and moved out of the school district that was public outside that busing area so that they'd not have to comply with integration. They established, or what was established, there were building and zoning codes that only a certain socioeconomic status could comply with. A certain amount of brick had to be used on the homes. You follow me. The yards had to be of a certain size. The lots cost a certain amount of money. And so it was clear who was going to live in Woodway. If you follow Chip and Joanna Gaines, you've probably seen houses featured in Woodway. The church, churches moved with the people. I raised church history not to make us feel hopeless. I don't feel hopeless. I'm actually encouraged. I have tremendous hope. But the hope I feel for the church is based on the Holy Spirit's work in the life of believers to make his bride truly beautiful and to address the ugliest, ugliest parts of the human soul. The Holy Spirit works despite our sinfulness. That is all too clear in the history of the American church. I raise the shameful parts of the American church's history because I want to make sure that we're ready to engage with our neighbors, that we have an answer to the ugly parts of our past, that we can address church history and talk about the necessity of repentance and the mercy of God on the American church, that it's him, Christ, who's building the church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, and he doesn't give up on us at any point, even when we're prejudiced or racist, as I was, I'm sure I still have unconscious bias. Hard not to be racist and prejudiced when you grow up in a culture where your parents, I'm not parents, where your grandparents use the N-word. It's a lot to unravel. 
Yes, the American church has made great strides, but there's much more work to do. We must be honest about our past if we're to be more godly in the future. You know, it's common for white Christians of our generation to say things like, well, I wasn't part of the church that committed those sins. I've never owned slaves. I've never relocated to avoid integration. I'm not a member of the KKK. Certainly, our role and responsibility in the civil rights effort is different. This generation's role and responsibility in the civil rights movement is certainly different than was our parents' role and responsibility and our grandparents' role and responsibility. Follow me here. But if my children don't know that my father and grandfather were both alcoholics, they don't really know me. And if they don't really know the family that they're a part of, then they don't really know what God has set our family free from. And so when we say things like, well, I wasn't a part of slaveholding, and I am not a member of the KKK, if we don't know that our fathers and mothers and grandfathers and grandmothers collectively, I'm not speaking to your individual but I'm saying, if, you're a, if you consider yourself a member of the church of Jesus Christ, and you don't know what your father, or won't acknowledge what your mother and father and grandfather and grandmothers wrestled with in the sin that was a part of the American church, then you don't really know the American church, and you don't really know the good work that God has done to remedy the sin, the, the ugly, atrocious sin, it was a part of the American church. In other words, if we won't look at the past, we can't celebrate the redemption that God has worked. And we mute the future glory that God would work in our lives. So when our neighbors have a yard sign firmly planted in the front of their shrubs, doubt whether the church really believes that black lives matter because of the racist past of the American church, we're now ready to acknowledge those sins and share with them the necessity of repentance in everybody's life, individually, collectively. We're ready now to present the gospel. Yea, verily, this is the reason Christ came. Tim Keller, one of my favorite theologians, talks about the correcting element of the Holy Spirit's work in the church bringing us out of these sinful entanglements individually, collectively. This self-correcting, it's not self-correcting, there's a better way to reference this, but this, this Holy Spirit correction and growth of the church, this maturational experience of the church as we let go of prejudice or unconscious bias or overt racism, whatever it is, and the Holy Spirit moves us on to, to value all people and to be a good neighbor to others. He says, Keller would have us know, uh, Scripture would have us know more importantly, that's unique to the church. I'm not saying other religions can't make social, political, economic progress. I think other religions can do that. 
But this reference, the, the Spirit's work on our lives so that he brings us out and he, he makes the bride beautiful is unique. It's so unique that we can say with great, um, great praise that the Christian church is the most socially diverse church in the world, uh, socially, most socially diverse religion in the world. Christianity, because of the Holy Spirit's work and God's laser lock, that the gospel will go to the ends of the earth. Is the most, Christianity is the most socially malleable religion. The gospel has inroads into every culture, every ethnos. And today, Christianity, a real point of praise is God is accomplishing what God has set out to do, and that is that every nation, language, tribe, and people group would come in and hear the good news and, and be a part of the church. Christianity is the most socially diverse religion in the world. And I should mention that when I say Black Lives Matter, I'm in no way endorsing the organization that shares that name. I think that the Black Lives Matter organization is, their values are bankrupt, uh, their values are contra-biblical. So I in no way endorse the organization, but we're all bright enough to cull out the agenda of that organization from the phrase itself. so that we can have a productive dialogue with our neighbors about the hope that's in Christ, uniquely in Christ. I should also mention that I don't have any hidden social agenda. You know, when I hear that John Piper has been la labeled communist for his public declaration that Black Lives Matter, and if you're not familiar with the undertow in the conservative white evangelical church on this matter, count yourself blessed. But the undertow is such that leaders like John Piper are being labeled communist. It's the very label they gave to Martin Luther King Jr. I don't have any hidden social agenda here. Uh, there won't be a children's ministry 1619 curriculum. Good, some of you are tracking with me. I have a social agenda, make no mistake, but it ain't hidden. My social agenda and the elders who allow me to stand up here is that we'd understand clearly the biblical priorities of every nation, language, tribe, and people group hearing and coming into the church. That's my agenda. So where's the gospel in all this? We're here to rehearse the gospel. It's in the message of repentance. It's in the praise of Christ our Savior. The, the message is that when the American church was prejudiced, racist, bigoted, criminal in some respects, when you have 40,000 clergy, members of the Ku Klux Klan in the 1920s, it's safe to say we had some criminal elements leading the church, especially, let me see if I can get these dates right, especially between, I think it's 1920 and 1954, 1,000 lynchings took place in America. 
Folks, the gospel is in the invitation to repentance and the comfort that we can all have in knowing that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And God doesn't give up, not even on a racist church. He's going to make his bride beautiful. Beautiful. Would you pray with me? Father, we love you. We ask that you'd care for us. And that Glenn Bible Church would increasingly look like the high schools that we serve. That our diversity, that people of color would feel increasingly at home here. Loved. Cared for. We pray this for the glory of the gospel, the Savior who's king of the gospel. We pray this for our own good. We pray it for, for the good of America and the good of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.